Love a congregation of the Lord. This is a very special Sunday for Christians in our tradition because this is the day that we celebrate that wonderful Lord's Day of Pentecost. You see, after the Lord Jesus rose from the dead and and ministered to his people over the space of, of 40 days, what happened was that he ascended up into heaven. We considered that recently, I trust, his ascension up into heaven. And he instructed his disciples before he went that they should remain in Jerusalem and wait for power from on high. And what an amazing Lord's Day that was, a Lord's Day unlike any other. As the the early Christians were huddled there in an upper room, what what happened was that all of a sudden they heard the sound of a mighty rushing wind. And above every, every person gathered there, they saw flaming tongues of fire, little, little bits of fire over the heads of everyone there. And as they, they left that upper room and began to go out into the streets, they, they began to speak in, in special languages, languages they'd never learned before. They were able to talk to all the different Jews and proselytes gathered in Jerusalem, whether they were from Arabia or or Rome or wherever they were, in their own languages. An amazing feat of God, an amazing miracle of his grace. And, And understandably, this caused a great commotion. People wanted to know what all this meant. And so one of the disciples, by the name of Peter, he stood up and began to teach the people from the scriptures what it was that had unfolded before their very eyes, the meaning of it. He he went to this prophecy and that prophecy, showing how it was all pointing to this great reality. He put it, This way, in Acts chapter 2, verses 32 to 33, This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we are all witnesses. Therefore, being by by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he hath shed forth this, which ye now see and hear. So Peter there, he, he spoke about how all of these signs, the, the rushing wind, the flaming fire, the tongue spoken, those were all a demonstration of the fact that the Holy Spirit had been sent by Jesus Christ. But you notice that he puts it in a very particular way, that Christ, having received of the Father the promise, of the Holy Spirit. You see, this sending forth of the Holy Spirit, it was something which was no afterthought. It was no, um, no thing that was a great surprise to those who were learned in the Scriptures, for it had been promised in many prophecies beforehand. There was an anticipation among the Old 
Testament believers about this wonderful gift that God would bestow to his church, the sending forth of the third person of the Holy Trinity, the Holy Spirit. I think that the best way in which we would be able to meditate upon what that really means for us would be to focus just upon one of those prophecies where the Holy Spirit was promised. And to that end, I'd like to bring you back to what we read in Isaiah chapter 52. Isaiah 52 and verse 15. So shall he sprinkle many nations. The kings shall shut their mouths at him. For that which had not been told them shall they see. And that which they had not heard shall they consider. I'd like to open up this text and so we can come to see what a wonderful gift the Holy Spirit it is to the church. We'll consider, in the first place, the sender of this Holy Spirit, the one who sends the Holy Spirit. And these uh, verses of which we, we read at the end of verse 52, and it, begin, it begins this great paragraph that continues right into chapter 53, and that is about none other than the servant of the Lord. And this prophecy of, of the servant of God, it's one of the most vivid and clear descriptions of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look how that section begins at verse 13. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. The idea of a servant is that he is one who does the will of another. Jesus Christ, he is one who was sent as a representative of God, his Father. And here the prophet foretells that he will deal prudently. He will deal in great wisdom and perfection with everything that he sets his mind to. It says in Psalm 40, Lo, I come in the volume of the book. It is written of me to do thy will, O God. That was what Jesus Christ could say. He dealt well with every command he received from his Father. He came not to do his own will, but the will of the one who sent him. He is the servant. And if you knew nothing else about Jesus Christ, but the words of this prophecy, you would know that the, the purpose of his coming was that he should be exalted. He should be lifted very high, it says in that verse 13. As we see that Christ being placed in that position of greatest honor and authority at the right hand of the Father, it was something that came forth from the will of God from eternity. This was always God's purpose, that he should glorify his Son. But it would also be clear to you, if you knew nothing else but these words, that he should be exalted and brought to that place of glory 
through a path of deep suffering. Verse 14, as many were astonished or astonished at thee, his visage was so marred more than any man in his form more than the sons of men. Here is someone who is so tortured, so injured, so disfigured that you look at him and say, is that even a human being? Here we see that this one, though perfectly faithful to his father, would go through a path of the deepest suffering and anguish. He was despised and rejected of men, the prophet will go on to say, a man acquainted with grief. But not for his own sins was he dealt with by God in this way. It pleased the Lord to bruise him, to crush him, to destroy him. Why? Because the iniquities of his people were laid upon him. He died on the cross as a representative of the worst of sinners. That much you could see from this prophecy. But it does not end there. It says that this one who will be exalted and and will be exalted in the way of suffering and humiliation, that the very climax and pinnacle of his reward and glorification will be in the sending forth of his Holy Spirit. Thus he adds in verse 15, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Now, Here we have the Holy Spirit pictured to us as water. So just as if I were to take some some water here and and take some of the water and and sprinkle that on, on you today, so forth, so is also Jesus Christ pictured here right now taking the Holy Spirit as water and sprinkling the Holy Spirit on many nations. It's obviously a, a spiritual picture. It's a, it's a poetic picture. But, but this is a way in which the prophets oftentimes speak of the sending of the Holy Spirit. You see, for example, earlier on in this uh, prophet Isaiah, chapter 44 and verse 3, For I will pour water upon him that is thirsty. And floods upon the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon thy seed. And my blessing upon thine offspring. In another place it says in Ezekiel 36 and verse 24. Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you. And ye shall be clean from all your filthiness. And from all your idols will I cleanse you. So there's these prophecies saying that the Holy Spirit will come. And the the way this is pictured is, is of the sending of water. And it's also connected especially with the work of Jesus Christ as the promised King and Messiah. Thus we see in Psalm 72 and verse 6 where it speaks of the Messiah or the Christ, he shall come down like rain upon the mown grass as showers that water the earth. 
It's a very fitting picture in, in many ways. We know, don't we, that there could be no life for us whatsoever in this world if there were no water to sustain us. We, uh, if we were placed in a barren desert without anything to drink, without anything to give moisture and uh, sustenance to our bodies, we would shrivel up and die. And so it is also spiritually. Without the giving of the Holy Spirit, there is no spiritual life. And the thing that we must understand is that this giving of the Spirit by Jesus Christ, it's not only the very pinnacle and high point of his glorification that he should send forth his Spirit. It is also a a gift and a treasure of infinite value to his people. In the, the prof, in the Gospel of John, chapter 16 and verse 7, Jesus spoke to his disciples like this, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. So I'd imagine that if I could tell you that you could have the privilege of living in the days when Jesus Christ walked and talked with his disciples, you would say, well, that would be something I would give anything for. But Jesus saying here that actually the greater thing for us, the better thing for us is not that he remain here on the earth. It is that he depart and send us the one who will bring us comfort and peace and joy. The one who would apply all the benefits and blessings of Jesus Christ, which he purchased for us on the cross and bring those to our own souls. If we have any knowledge of God, if we have any faith, if we have any love, it comes from this source the wonderful gift of the Holy Spirit. And you know, and whenever we think about the coming of, of Jesus Christ in the flesh around Christmas, there's a lot of anticipation, isn't there? Even those who don't even uh, recognize Jesus Christ, they're, they suddenly get very festive and they sing songs about him sometimes. And, and it seems like the whole world is full of anticipation. But shouldn't it also be the case that around Pentecost, we should also be equally excited to remember the coming of the Holy Spirit to his church? If it were not for this, if we're not for the Holy Spirit, then all the benefits of Christ would be meaningless to sinners like us. Praise God for this sender of the Holy Spirit. But going back to our text in Isaiah 52, I'd like to notice this as well, not only the sender of the Holy Spirit, but also the purifying work of the Holy Spirit. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Now that word sprinkle it might not mean much to you, but if you looked at the Hebrew, you'd actually know that this is a very technical word that is used here. And, and it's always used in the context of a priest that is performing a purifying work. Now, 
It might be the case, the, the book of Leviticus is one of the harder books to read. You, you pick up that book and wow, there's like all these rules that were regulating the, the church of the Jews. Every aspect of their life and worship and, and all that meticulous detail is laid out. And, and maybe you'd even come to those stories about what would happen to the one who came down with a terrible skin disease of leprosy. All of a sudden, this Jewish person, he wakes up one day and, and his skin is white with this terrible affliction. And it's not just dealt with as a health problem, but as a religious problem. A priest comes to him and, and examines him and says, I'm, I'm so sorry, but, but you're now unclean. You're unclean. You have leprosy. You have to, to leave the camp. You have to leave the people of God. You, you have to go out into the outside the camp leaving behind everyone that you formerly knew. And God was, was teaching there in chapters like Leviticus 13 that, that indeed God is, is a holy God. No impure thing can dwell in his presence. And so that's pictured in the, in the leper being driven out. But when that leprosy would subside, he would present himself to the priest and, and he'd be enabled to be admitted back in. But not before a wonderful ceremony was performed. The killing of a, of a bird and, and the taking of the blood of that bird and using a, a special plant called hyssop. He would dip some of that plant and the, the Jewish priest would, as he says, in Leviticus 14, verse 7, he shall sprinkle upon him that is to be cleansed from the leprosy seven times and shall pronounce him clean. Now there, when we're dealing with the ceremonial law, you had to be ceremonially clean. You had to be purified in order to come into the holy presence of God with his worshipers. And the lesson there was always a spiritual lesson. It was one that if you would approach unto a holy God, there must be purification. We already read it, but I'd like to turn again to that prophecy in Ezekiel, which I, I think especially draws out this truth. And this time let's look at Ezekiel 36 and read again from verse 24 and following. For I will take you from among the heathen and gather you out of all the countries and bring you into your own land. Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you and ye shall be clean from all your filthiness and from all your idols will I cleanse you. A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And ye shall keep my judgments and do them. Maybe this is Especially helpful maybe to someone who's just coming into the Christian faith. And, and maybe there's, there's still so much confusion about certain things, but, but you really desire Christ and you long to know him. And so 
perhaps you, you set aside some time and you say, I'm going to pray to this God. And maybe you, you get down on your knees and begin to speak to him what's on your heart and, and all of a sudden you begin to freeze up because you're struck by this thought. This God is so righteous He is so great. How dare I speak unto him? What if I say a wrong word? What if I have an impure thought? Won't he cast me out of his presence? Then there is this promise that wherever there is a true, sincere heart approaching unto God is because God has approached you first. Every motion of the heart and true faith that seeks the face of the Lord, it is that which has been placed in you by his life-giving spirit. Wherever someone has been, been brought from that state of, of coldness, of deadness, of, of insensitivity that's pictured by that, that stony heart and brought into a place where they fear the Lord, where, where they desire him, where they hate their sin, where they would long for the salvation of Jesus Christ. Is that not indeed something that comes from Christ, sprinkling his spirit upon his people and purifying them from the inside in order that they would be able to approach him in spiritual worship. That's really the wonderful comfort that we can know from this prophecy. So shall he sprinkle many nations. That was the way that was pictured, the work of the sending of the Spirit, that not merely the lepers outside the camp, not only would they be brought back in, but even the nations, even the Gentiles, those in utter ignorance of the ways of God, those given to all kinds of idolatry and sin and defilement, they as well would be purified unto the worship of God. What glorious things are pictured in this wonderful prophecy. And I'd like to set forth in, in the third place, not only the sender of the Holy Spirit and the purifying work of the Spirit. In the third place, let's consider also the mission of the Holy Spirit. Well, right after it says those words, so shall he sprinkle many nations. It continues on, doesn't it? The kings shall shut their mouths at him. For that which had not been told them shall they see. And that which they had not heard shall they consider. There you have it, don't you? You, you have the wonderful effects that will come from the nations being purified and set apart unto the worship of God. At those rulers and kings with authority and power who formerly scoffed at God and despised his promises and commandments, they shut their mouths in awe and reverence. You have these people who've never even so much as, as heard of Christ. They suddenly see him in all his glory and majesty. They will be brought to consider the deep things of the worship of God, the knowledge of God, the salvation of God through his Son, 
the faith that rests upon Christ alone. That is what will take place, and not merely for the nation of the Jews, but for all nations. Go ye therefore and baptize all nations, disciple all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ said. And there would be no such mission were it not for this wonderful revelation of what is on the heart of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit desires that sinners be saved from every conceivable background and walk of life. You notice how that's really drawn out in that passage which we read from um, Romans chapter 15 where you, you see from from Paul's words there, how he's, he's meditating upon the glorious truths of this mission of, of God accomplished through his Holy Spirit. He says there in Romans 15 and verse 16, when describing himself, that I should be the minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God, that the offering up of the Gentiles might be acceptable, being sanctified by the Holy Ghost. And he goes on in in that same connection, down in verse 19 and following, through mighty signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and round about unto Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. Yea, so have I strived to preach the gospel, not where Christ was named, lest I build upon another man's foundation, but as it is written, to whom he was not spoken of, they shall see, and they that have not heard shall they understand." There you have Paul quoting our text from Isaiah, although from the Septuagint version of him. But it's, it's there. And the reason that that is on his heart is he is so caught up in this mission of God through his Holy Spirit to separate a people unto himself. And brothers and sisters, this is what we need as well. We need, as, his, as God's people, to have the heart of the Holy Spirit as well. You notice how Paul, he's, he's setting forth this great reality that he is going on this mission to Spain and, and to all these other regions in order to preach the gospel. And, and he's, in the context of the epistle to the Romans, asking for their support. But he doesn't just give any sort of dry presentation about this kind of expense and that kind of strategy. No, he brings them to the big picture. What God is doing through Jesus Christ in the salvation of sinners from every nation. And he is so caught up in that. And he wants all those Christians in Rome to have that same vision. Yes, they may not all be called to be the missionary on the front line. But he wants them to have that zeal, that drive, that they are in the battle with him, that they are seeking to expand the kingdom and the scope and the reign of Jesus Christ and 
to do that by participating in the glorious work of the Holy Spirit, calling sinners unto himself through the gospel. There's that. That's really that that would bring us to the place where we would say a word to our neighbor. We would invite them into our home and speak to them about the Jesus Christ whom we love and adore. It's that that would bring us to the place where we strive with God in prayer for revival, for missions, for conversions. It's that that would cause us to be those who would be on fire for the Lord, also engaging in evangelism, intentionally sharing the gospel with the lost. For if we've ever encountered that, we know that every other foundation for that kind of activity, it will grow cold, it will grow stale, and we will ultimately give it up. If we would hope that people would welcome this message with open arms and say, thank you, thank you for sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ, then we have a much higher view of man than the Bible does. The Bible says there is none that seeketh after God. Left to themselves, they are those who never hear, never see, never desire anything in him. And yet, where that message goes forth, through the power of the Spirit, they are brought into Christ's kingdom. The thing that must bring us to do these sorts of things, to share the gospel, is the sight of God's glorious majesty, his worthiness, that he should be obeyed and honored, and his amazing grace in pouring forth the Holy Spirit upon the church, endowing us with the power in order to share the gospel. And yes, this message is a savor of death unto death for death for those who reject this word. Indeed, God is glorified in that. But is God not so glorified when it is a savor of life unto life for those who believe? Oh, congregation, let us see that we do not live in, in times where God has forsaken us. We live in the age of the Spirit. We live in the age where the Holy Spirit has been poured forth on the church, when Christ is gathering the nations unto himself, and God has not changed. He has not forsaken his church. He will never renege on his promise. Let us therefore be bold to live before this Christ. Let us be bold to speak the gospel as it truly is, the power of God unto salvation, not only applying it unto our own souls, but as well, glorying in this great God and Savior by bringing others into the kingdom. Amen.